If you have your Bible with you there this morning, just please turn to the, the book of Hebrews. Keep wanting to say the sermon to the Hebrews. That's why if I, if I hesitate there, I want to say the sermon. Because it's not really a book, it's a sermon. It's a sermon that was recorded, a pastor speaking to his people. A shepherd speaking to his sheep. So let's turn to chapter 8. I'm going to read chapter 8. It's only 13 verses, so please don't panic. I'll read it and then we'll look at it. And today, God willing, I'll preach through from verse 1 down to verse 6. Okay. Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read the entire chapter to you. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth he would not be a priest. Since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said to him, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they, they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what was obsolete is growing old and is about to pass away. Amen. It seems so long since I preached the last sermon, so I might have to do a little bit of a a catch up to remind you where we are. It is very helpful that in the very first verse of chapter 8, 
the writer, the speaker points out what he's been talking about. He's very conscious that he's got to a point where his people who's listening, they may have forgotten what he's talking about. It's very common amongst ministers, amongst pastors, amongst professional speakers to kind of get lost in what they're talking about. And so they have to remind people. And it's wonderful to see that that happens in the Bible as well. That God has to remind his people what he's talking about. And he says here, the main point of what I'm talking about is this. That we have a high priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember in the context in which this letter, this message is delivered. The speaker is speaking to a people who have come out of Judaism. They are Jews, but they are no longer temple Jews. They are no longer the the Jews who are participating in the traditions, the rituals, the ceremonies of the elders. They are coming out. They are on the transition of the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Just think. If you were a Jew 2,000 years ago in the land of Israel. And the day of atonement came. Yom Kippur came. The day when all of the men would gather together. And they would have their parade up to Jerusalem. And the ladies and the children. They would be in the train behind them. Not really part of the, of the uh, parade going up. And the men would go in. And they would lay their hands upon the sheet. And the, high, the priest would come and cut the throat. And the blood would come out. And they would collect it. And the, they'd have a party, a celebration. And they would do this in order to offer up sacrifices for sins. And that was a traditional thing. They did it every year. They've been doing it forever and they would continue to do it. But then the Jew becomes a believer. A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And no longer does that... Jew have to go then and lay hands upon the sheep. Why? Because Jesus is his lamb, his sheep, his sacrifice. I don't have to offer up sacrifices for my sin because Jesus has cleansed me from all sin. And now I have perfect relationship with God. For the Jew of the first century, that was blasphemy, heresy, tremendously offensive. And so we see in the early church in the first century a great discord. A a father against son, mother against daughter, child against parent. There is a cultural crash happening as the Christian Jews, the Messianic Jews are saying we no longer have to go to the temple to worship because we worship in spirit and in truth and Christ has made a way. And I am able to enter into the holiest of holies by myself. I can turn to God at any moment. I don't need a mediator. I don't need a priest or a high priest. Because Christ has made a way for me. And this caused tremendous persecution. People were being put out of the synagogue. Now, that's not just being put out of church. That's being put out of community. 
You're no longer allowed to work in the community. You're no longer allowed to exchange money. People take distance from you. You are, you are cast out of your community, basically. Your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your husbands, your wives, and all those other things. You've become an anathema, an untouchable, an abomination. You're cut off. And as you can imagine, that has caused difficulty. That caused problems in the family life. And as a result of this, there was a wavering amongst the first Jews. A wavering, I mean, they were unsure, hesitant. There was a move to somehow in some way keep the trappings of the religion of Israel. Well, we can believe in Jesus, but also, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with the, the group called the Judaizers. That group of religious Jewish Christians who followed Paul around wherever Paul went on his journeys. And these Jewish Christians would follow Paul and say, yes, Paul's completely correct, but... You must also embrace the traditions of Judaism. You must be circumcised or your child must be circumcised. You must obey the, the washings. You know, they, they didn't just wash their hands. We, 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 we've gone this before. They, they washed their arms, you know, and they washed the other arm. And then they washed the, again the hand that had touched whatever. And then they, they stood in a bath and they took a basin and they, they covered their heads and they washed themselves every time they came in from the street they had to wash themselves and it was more of a symbolic washing it wasn't the teaching of the bible it was the teaching of the elders and it had supplanted biblical teaching tradition had taken over and now that the christians the christian jews were doing away with that it was causing difficulty and as a result of the difficulty, there were Christians, Christian Jews, who were yet again conforming back to the ways of Judaism. And as a result of that, the writer of the Hebrews writes a warning message to them. And I've told you before, there were three particular groups within the Hebrew community. There were those who were believers. But yet in their faith they were wavering. They were out and out believers. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I confess that he is my Lord and Savior. And they followed him openly. But yet because of the persecution. They were fearful. There was a second group. Those who accepted Jesus but were not outward believers. or They did not confess him outwardly. They were open to it, but yet they were, they were hiding the fact. They just went along with their traditions for a quiet and peaceful life. They knew what was right, but to preserve relationships, to prevent them from suffering the consequences of their actions, they conformed to the norm. They looked like everybody else. I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to cause offense. I don't want to 
be offended, therefore I just live my life. We might call them nominal believers or fearful believers. And then there's the third and final party to whom the writer is writing or the speaker is speaking. And those are to the the unbelieving Jews. Those who were Jewish by tradition, but yet, and they, they carried out all the rituals. They went to the temple when they had to go to the temple. They offered up sacrifices. They did all the things according to the letter of the law. But there was nothing in their heart. They did not accept Jesus as Messiah. And indeed, they, did they really believe in God? Well, in a, in a nominal sense. But in a real sense, how they lived their lives, there was an absence of faith in them. So we see those three groups and the writer of the Hebrews is speaking to them. And as church today, we, we, we can actually identify with that. You know, we have people who are out and out believers who live their life for Christ, but because they, the pressures that they might be fearful, they might be hesitant. We saw that during the corona time. People fearful of living out their faith. Then we have people who are just conforming. They believe in Jesus Christ, but they would perhaps are worldly Christians. They just, or Sunday Christians we might call them. They come to church, but during the rest of the week, you wouldn't know that they're a believer. They, they have no relationship with God outside Sunday, outside the gathering of the church. And then we also also have unbelievers among us. People who have been here all their lives and yet don't believe. They may be nominal Christians. They may be brought up in households of Christians, but they themselves have never made a profession of faith. They have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see that the, the Holy Spirit through the writer, through the speaker to the Hebrews, he still speaks to us today. It's just not a letter written by a Hebrew to a Hebrew, a Jew to a Jew. And therefore, what's it got to do with me or you? The relevance of the message is vitally important. As a result of the persecutions upon the early Christians, Many of them had been put out of the synagogue. Many of them had been put out of the temple. And now they were worried. They were fearful. If we can't worship God at the temple, if we can't gather together at the synagogue, what are we going to do? How? I mean, oh my goodness. And they were concerned and they were afraid. And yet the writer here writes to them, strengthening them. Securing them, lifting them up, because he wants them to look beyond the simple trappings of the ceremonies of religion here and now in this world. He wants them to look beyond the temple and the ceremonies. He wants them to see Jesus and to know the reality of who he is and what he has done on their behalf. And so for the first seven chapters, he's talked about the sonship of Jesus, but also he's talked about the priesthood of Jesus and how the the priesthood of Jesus is a superior priesthood than the priesthood of the Levites. 
He secures that. He establishes that in the minds. He's saying that the priesthood of Jesus is something better than the priesthood of the temple of the old system. He talked about that. Remember that, that the high priest of their days, it was an inherited system. They had it for a time and then they died or they got too old and they passed it on. That the high priest himself would have to offer up sacrifices for his own sin. Pointing out that even the sacrifice that the high priest offered wasn't sufficient to save. It was deficient in its system. Here, now, he comes back and he reminds us, listen, the main point of what I'm saying is our high priest, the one who represents us in heaven, is so much better than the world's earthly systems. He points out that the kind that we have is he sat down at the right hand of majesty in, on high. The idea of sitting down, a high priest sitting down while he is in the temple was unheard of. We, I guess we all know if we've done Sunday school, we know what the high priest did. He, you know, he had the rope tied around his leg with the wee bells on his stuff so that if he died they would hear. And he would walk in and he would have the bucket of blood and the... the the bastole, what do you call that thing that we use in the bastole? You know the thing you beat yourself? Well, he had one of those of hyssop. And he would dip it in the bucket of blood. And he would, he would splash behind the curtain. And then fix his earlobe and all the rest of the stuff they did. Very symbolic. And he would go in there and he would ceremonially offer up sacrifices. Ceremonially do all these things. And then when he was done, he would turn around and he would go out again. And he'd go outside and he would do a little sermon, prayer thing that he would do on the outside. But he would never sit down. I'm thinking. Because why? Because he would have to come back again next year and do the same thing. His job never ended. The sacrifices were never sufficient for once and for all. To wipe out the debt of man's sin. But Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us. That once he had performed his ministry. Offered up his sacrifice. In the holy of holies. In heaven itself. He then sat down at the right hand of majesty. Again in the Former chapters, he refers to Psalm 110 and those verses speaking about this. Christ sits down. He's accomplished. He's finished. It's all done. There's nothing else to do. And not only is he done, but he's received a place of honor. That he's able to sit down at the right hand. That's an honored position. He's demonstrating that the one who represents us is so much higher than any earthly priest could do on our behalf. And not just that his work is finished, but where was that work done? 
It wasn't done here on earth in some earthly temple created by the hands of man. No, it was done in heaven in the sanctuary created by God. I don't think that there's a temple in heaven. Let's just get me sure here. I don't think that he's talking physically in the sense that, that there's a, a, a photocopy of the Israeli Jerusalem temple in heaven but rather the function in which he's done. Jesus did it where it counted, where it was, where it was needed and where it was real. And he goes on to tell us that every high priest is appointed to offer up gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest to have something to offer now, since he, if he was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since those who are offering gifts prescribed by the, there are those, but they serve as a copy and a shadow. The old system, with its temple and its priests and its sacrifices, was but a shadow and a copy of the things that were to come. They were a representative, a type giving us a fuller picture of what Jesus was going to do. We're told in the Old Testament that the blood of goats, bulls and goats, cannot cleanse us from sin, cannot take away the guilt of sin. Took something more, took a life for a life. Jesus offered up his life, his blood on our behalf. For us, for not, us who are not Jews, this is great news. Fantastic, wonderful, amen. It releases us from being tied to one place to worship. It sets us free from the different kinds of earthly worship. In the sense of Jesus is our high priest. He is our representative. He is our mediator. Therefore, here on earth... We do not need a high priest, a mediator, a representative. We are freed from those earthly systems that ties us to a certain individual or a certain role. Think of the Roman Catholic Church with its Pope, its papious fallacy, blasphemy, nonsense. That they believe that he represents Christ here on earth. That he is our mediator. The Pope is our mediator. And if the Pope isn't here, it's a bishop or a cardinal or a priest. Well, here in this, we see very clearly that that system has been done away with. We no longer are tied to having earthly representatives who come and offer up sacrifices. If we were a Roman Catholic church, God forbid that such a thing should ever happen. And we were to offer up, we had the, the, the good chance, the mass that they have. The priest, they don't do what we do in the celebration of the word and the, the lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ. They bloodlessly re-sacrifice Jesus every time they meet. You know that you see the, 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 the priest with the Eucharist, the little cracker that they have, and they, they capture Jesus in that cracker. And then they sacrifice him once again for the sins of the church anew. Blasphemy. 
And yet here in this text, we see very clearly that our high priest, our representative, the one who speaks on our behalf before the throne is so much better than any earthly representative. I do not need a man to represent me before heaven. No bishop, no pope, no priest, no pastor. Why? Because I have the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my representative. He is my high priest, our high priest. His efforts on my behalf are supreme. So much more superior. Why? Because that gift, that offering that he supplied, firstly, the gifts, a righteous life. Our Lord Jesus Christ never sinned. He was sinless. He was innocent. Perfect. That life that was lived was lived 100% pleasing to God the Father. He neither sinned in word, thought, or deed at any point from his conception till his death here on earth. He lived a perfectly pleasing life to God. Unbelievable. Think about that. Not just that it was in perfect relationship to God the Father, but perfect relationship to the people around him. He's the only one of us who's ever loved the Lord as God with all his soul, heart, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus fulfilled that. Accomplished that one for himself, a reward by doing so. And then he offered up sacrifice. As one who came to represent those who could not Please, God. Beloved, you in yourself, you in your humanity, not one day have you ever, not one moment of one day have you ever pleased God. Not one day, not one moment in one day have you ever lived a life worthy of God's recognition, of God's applause. Never once has God given you a thumbs up for something that you've done Your life from the moment of conception until the moment of death has only won for you the wrath of God, the anger of God, the punishment, the wrath, that just anger. And yet, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his death, offered up sacrifice on your behalf. That you might have peace with God. That you might be reconciled to God. That His righteousness might be met out to you. That you might live in His righteousness. It's not His righteousness plus your righteousness, Christian. You being good today gives you a thumbs up, a gold star. Beloved, we are set free from the old systems of the world where we, we need a man or a woman or a person to represent us. Why? Because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And then also this, we are set free from having to worship God in a certain place. 
The Jews had to worship God in Jerusalem at the temple. Now they could meet together in the synagogue system that, that was born during the time of Nehemiah, Ezra and those 400 years before Christ came. But ultimately God had to be worshipped in the temple. You had to offer up your gifts, your sacrifices. You had to be there in person. Jesus Christ did away with that. Why? Because the temple, the place where he represented us, wasn't a place here on earth. It was the heavenly reality. He didn't offer up sacrifices before the Holy of Holies here on earth, but rather within that sanctuary which is in heaven. So he set us free from all that ritual behavior, from all of that traditional behavior, in order that we might be those who worship him in spirit and in truth. That we might be able to come to him at any moment of any day. That we might have the freedom to approach God without fear, without condemnation. We are the free people of God. Christ has set us free from the bonds, from the bindings of earthly religion. And that's tremendously good news, especially for us who live up here in Finland, far away from everywhere, that we don't have to make pilgrimage three times a year to Jerusalem, that we don't have to be bound to a certain kind of man from a certain kind of family to do a certain kind of work. All of our faith rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Because of what he has done, because of who he is, that gives you and I the freedom to be able to worship at any place, at any point. Not to be bound up by the traditions, the regulations, the ceremonies of man. But we have been set free. Again, these things that happened, that were happening, the, 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 the traditions of the Levites, the, they were but shadows and copies of something that was to come, the work and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were pointing to him. They were never meant to be the, the process by which we, we became clean. God did not intend for all the world to become Jews. It was a vehicle by which Christ came. The system, the Old Testament system. A vehicle by which Christ came into the world to offer up sacrifices in order that the gospel might go out to all the world and that people from all, every nation, tribe and tongue might believe in him. Confess him to be Lord and to be saved. This is the point that the speaker, the writer, the Holy Spirit through the speaker, the writer is pointing out. The supremacy, the superiority of our high priest, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he isn't just slightly better. That he isn't just you know, good. He is superior, so much better. He has sat down. 
He's finished his work. And it is in him and in him alone can we trust. It's in him and him alone is salvation and forgiveness found. It says here in verse 5, For God said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Here he's quoting from Genesis 25, I think, verse 40. There is a really important lesson there to learn that Moses had to take it seriously. Take the way of faith seriously. Not to add his own little bit of sparkle, you know. Not to kind of make, try and help God make things better. He could have seen the pattern and said, Lord, I see what you're doing there. But Lord, I was taught in archaeology, not archaeology, um, Oh yeah, he was an architect. Moses was trained in, in, in the skill of being an architect. So that's what I've been taught in Bible college at least. And other things, warfare and poetry and all these other things. And he was literate. He could have looked at the plans that he saw upon the mountain and said, Lord, I see what you're doing there, but it's awfully plain. It's awfully boring and mundane. I think if we were to do a little bit of Egyptian oomph into it, we could make it a little bit more bling. But God says to him, do it exactly the way you, you were shown. Don't add your own to it. Don't try and have the disco, disco lights and the angels and all these other things going on there. Now, of course, the, the tabernacle was very bling. It was gold everywhere. But Moses was warned not to add his own interpretation or his own little extra something. And that lesson should filter down through time and through the millennia and we should hear it too. There is a warning there for us in church life that we don't add our little bit to the pattern. That we don't add something to the gospel. We don't add something to the priesthood of Christ or to the worshipping of the saints. We live in, in a in a nation that when you talk to like normal people, they'll say the church. And when they say the church, they mean the Lutheran church or the, the building. The church. It's the only place the Christians go to. The church. But we understand that the church is not a building. It's a congregation. It's the people. It's the community of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who love him and follow him. Because you cannot love him without following him. To live your life in his ways and to keep his requirements. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So we, we know that a person loves him by their lifestyle. But we are to be careful in how we live our lives. We are to be careful in that we don't add to our faith. Or we don't subtract from it. We don't try and help the Lord by adding little things that we're comfortable with. Moses was warned. And the Holy Spirit through the writer is warning the Hebrews of the first century. Be careful that you don't add to the gospel. Why does he say that? The Judaizers. 
Those people who followed Paul around, remember, they said, yes, Paul is correct. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But you must also become a Jew. You must live according to the traditions of my people and do things in our tradition according to how we see it. This is just right. And we know that that caused tremendous conflict and controversy in the first century. We must be absolutely aware of ourselves that we don't add to the simple gospel and to the simple faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in him and him alone. We don't need another priesthood. We don't need another earthly temple or established place of worship. Jesus has done it all for us. And then finally in verse 6, it tells us, but Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. The word superior means the ultimate. Something that is so much more better that it makes the first one look like a toy. Like a foolish thing. We don't have hunters. I don't know if you do hunt, but you know, hunters. You never see a hunter going out into the, into the forest with a toy gun. You know? With a, a plastic machine gun or a Nerf gun. You ever seen a hunter hunt Ellie with a Nerf gun? <laughs> it wouldn't work, would it? Why? Because Nerf guns don't kill animals. That's why we let our children shoot each other with them. Even if we say don't shoot them in the face. But you know, okay? The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a Nerf gun. It's not a water pistol. It's not one of those ones just make noises. It's the real thing. It's the real thing. It would be, I don't know what, an AR-15. That's an American gun. It's the only gun I know. It's an American gun. One of those machine gun things. Don't know guns. But it's authentic, it's real, it's true, it does what it's supposed to do. It's not a facsimile, it's not a copy, it's not a representation. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a copy, it's not just another Nerf gun, it's the real deal. His ministry is the real deal. He is the one who really represents us. He's the one who really achieved salvation for us. Won salvation for us. He's the one who dispenses that salvation. He's the one who maintains us and keeps us. It's him. Not some high priest who who inherited it from his father. That he himself might not be a believer. That his prayers only work if he means them. You know in the Roman Catholic Church. The prayers of a priest only work if the priest actually means them. And if he doesn't mean it. It doesn't work. So if he's baptizing a baby. And he doesn't mean it in his heart. Really, really, really honestly mean it. The child doesn't necessarily get born again. Or be given merit. Wickedness. Wickedness. Our Lord Jesus Christ has a superior ministry. And to that degree, he's become the mediator, the representative of a better covenant. 
of a better agreement. The word covenant means agreement. You go to the bank and uh, you secure a loan and you enter into an agreement with the bank, a covenant. The bank will give you X amount of money and you put up something as surety or your parents do on your behalf or whoever it is. You know, if you go buy a house, it's normally you don't go to the bank and say, you know, I have this amount of money, give me this. Normally it's your parents who, who are the, the, the ones who represent you. The Lord Jesus Christ has gone to God the Father and he has said, I speak on their behalf. I am their guarantee. I give you this in order that you might give them that. What is the that? Eternal life. Peace with God. Reconciliation. What did Christ give in order to secure that life? Did he give the life of goats and bulls? No. Did he offer up a lot of money? No. Jewels and precious metals? No. He gave his own blood. He died. His very life dripped from him in the most horrific way in order to secure for you and for me eternal life and eternal peace with God. We have a great high priest. Do you think that in any way, shape or form that that what he has done for you can be taken away from you? That God and his goodness will go ah oh, Christ's sacrifice for you wasn't worth it and therefore he takes it back Jesus Christ has become the mediator of a better covenant that which we are a part of now is better than what was agreed upon in the old system and the writer or the speaker of the this epistle to the Hebrews he's about to go into that new covenant He's about to go in and explain to us now how much better we have it under this system than the people of the old system had. He tells us that this covenant, this agreement that we are a part of is so much better than the old and that it is based on better promises. We'll look at those in the future. But beloved, let me say in closing that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never had your sins forgiven, if you've never made peace with God, there is only one way for that to happen. There is only one way to approach God. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the recognition that you in yourself are not worthy and that you by yourself have no way of making peace with God. That every day you live without Him, you are saving up for yourself a reward of suffering. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's just not an end to life. That is a, an eternity of punishment. Punishment, you say, well, I haven't done anything worthy of being punished. I lived a good life. Every breath you take, every heartbeat that beats within your chest, 
without Christ is a rejection of his life and love. It's you saying, I don't need the death of Jesus Christ to make me right. It's you rejecting what God has done for you. Beloved, there is no other place where peace is found other than in Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to seek that peace. To find a place somewhere and to talk to God, to pray, to speak to him and say, Lord, God, if you're real, make yourself known to me. I remember the the moment of my own salvation many years ago, 30-something years ago, when the Lord spoke to my heart and allowed me to see the darkness of my own sin, the separation, the eternity between God and myself. And I realized how unworthy I was then and how unworthy I would be for the rest of my life. And then he showed me Jesus Christ. It was like we stood beside one another and all of a sudden he's there in his purity and his perfection and there's me, a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner next to him, full of shame and wickedness. I remember saying, Lord, I, I, I can't, I don't know why, Lord, I don't want this, I don't want. I'm going back and forward and eventually giving in and crying out, oh, Jesus, help me. Help me, I want to believe, but I don't know if I can believe. Help me, Lord, because I know I won't be able to live this life And in that moment, a change happened. In that moment, God saved me. And from being, I always think of it as a boiling pot. Have you ever cooked milk on a stove? Milk, you know? And the the milk gets so hot, it begins to bubble over. Begins to boil over and goes... My heart before that moment was like a bubbling pot of milk. Boiling over. And then I asked Christ to save me, to help me, to come to my rescue. And it was as if someone took another pint of milk and just poured that cold milk into the hot. And immediately there was perfect peace. Immediately I knew that God had saved me and changed me. And I went back to the class because God saved me while I was in high school. And the people in my class stopped talking and they said, what have you done? And I said, I think I've become a Christian this yet you... You look different. And I didn't just look different. I was different in my heart. He'd given me a new heart. A new spirit. Beloved, what he did for me, he can do for you. The Bible says that we're to seek the Lord while he can be found. The Bible says that the spirit of God will not always strive with man. Beloved, don't think to yourself, well, in 10 years, and 15 years, and 20 years after I've had my fun and lived my life and done all the things that I want to do in that moment, later in life, I'll, I'll come back to God and ask us for forgiveness and I'll, I'll seek him. Beloved, you do not know the, the extent of the days of your life. You do not know how many days God has given you. You may leave this place. And on leaving this place, going to somewhere, the Lord might take your life. Your time might come to an end. None of us are guaranteed a lifetime 
a long lifetime. Life is fleeting and should not be taken lightly. Beloved, I encourage you, make peace with God. Make peace with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. This life is short. I am 48 years old. I know I don't look at at my 20s, but life has passed so quickly. I think back and it seems I was 17 yesterday. I, I remember when my email was that size and holding him in my hand. And today he's 21 and he's a big man. Life happens so quickly. Do not pass up the opportunity. Do not take it for granted. Do not slap the hand of God as he reaches out to you. Seek him while he can be found. For he is the only true and real mediator. He is the only peace giver. His ministry is the supreme one. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. You'd help us to understand the things that have been spoken, to put them into practice, that we we wouldn't just be guilty of being hearers of the word and not doers of the word. Help us, O God, to live in perfect harmony with the gospel. To live in perfect harmony, not trusting in method and means of mankind. Not trusting in ceremony or religion or ritual. But in the perfect work of our perfect Savior. Lord, we are so grateful that you granted us this life. We are so grateful, Lord that you exposed us to it and that you drew, drew us to yourself and that you keep us, you watch over us despite all of our failings. You are always faithful. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to glorify you more. Lord, that we would be a more perfect demonstration of your gospel. Father, for those who do not know you, please, Lord, show mercy. Please, Lord, grant them the gift of life that you granted us. That, Lord, you would draw them to yourself irresistibly so as iron is drawn to a magnet. May they be drawn to you. Oh, Holy Spirit, do your work in the hearts and the minds of those among us. Father, we do pray these things for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.